0: R.P.N. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.
1: This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by Eagle Moss Hero Collector and the brand new the Orville Official Ships Collection. The first ships in the collection, including the Orville itself, are available now at herocollector.com slash Orville. Use code Mission10 at checkout to get 10% off your purchase with free shipping.
2: Mission Log, A Roddenberry Star Trek Podcast, Episode 385, Call to Arms.
1: Welcome to another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we examine each and every
0: episode of Star Trek, looking deeply for the morals, meanings, and
1: messages. This week, Call to Arms, the one where the Deep Space Nine crew are called to arms, because mm. there's about to be a war, and it seems appropriate.
0: Yeah, that does. That, that sounds like a good plan if a war is coming. Hey, I'll answer the
1: call for trivia in a moment, right after Norman tells you how to call us. Mission Log relies on your participation, so that's why we want to hear from you. Help us spread the word by giving us a like or a share on Facebook or Twitter, where you'll find us at Mission Log Pod. Your reviews at Apple Podcasts help other people find the show and we do appreciate it. You can reach us on Skype at missionlogpod or by calling 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at missionlog@rottenberry.com and remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And now to answer the call of trivia, here is John Champion. Well, thank you.
0: Today's episode was written by Iris Stephen Bear and Robert Hewitt-Wolf. Here we have our frequent collaborators in the writer-producer roles. Surprisingly, this would be Robert's last episode as part of the staff on DS9. Oh, sure, we will see his name one more time on DS9 for an episode that he wrote as a freelancer, but the end of season five was the end of his regular gig on the franchise. Shortly after this, he did go on to help usher another Gene Roddenberry project along to TV. That would be Andromeda, which premiered in the year 2000. Oh, and uh, Robert has a cameo in this very episode as a wounded Starfleet officer. This was directed by Alan Croker. We just saw his work on Children of Time. And he's been working concurrently with Voyager for the last couple of years, too. Here, he gets to close out the season, and as we will see, he gets to close out the majority of entire series for this era in Trek. These are the times that try men's souls. We hear that quoted in the episode by Captain Sisko. You might recognize those very words written in 1776. By Thomas Paine in the pamphlet The American Crisis. Uh, interestingly, Paine was born in England, didn't move to the colonies until 1774 because his friend Benjamin Franklin helped him to do so. And in two short years, he had become a strong, respected voice in the cause of the revolution. You may recognize his other pamphlet, Common Sense, which uh, took off about the same time. Um, also, in the world of homages in this episode, we have a great homage to Casablanca, which I'm sure we'll touch on a little bit later. But you have that scene between Rom and Lita. Now, in the original closing of that movie, you have Rick <laughs> saying that plane leaves the ground and you're not with him. You'll regret it. Maybe not today. Maybe not tomorrow, but soon and for the rest of your life. Then you skip ahead a little bit. I'm no good at being noble, but it doesn't take much to see that the problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. Someday you'll understand that. So we're actually cribbing two parts of the same scene still, but very well done. John, if you don't mind, I'd Mm -hmm. love
1: to interject here for a second because I would love to add to your trivia here. Yes. I do believe that the spirit of this scene was also cribbed from The Naked Gun, (laughs) where Frank Drebin's character was talking to Priscilla Presley. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and he was basically saying, you know, the problem of two people doesn't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. Well, this is our hill and yeah. these are our beans. Our beans. <laughs> I, I just found that particular scene to be a little bit more emotionally connected to me,
0: really resonated with ra- rather yeah. than Bogart yeah. and,
1: uh, and, um, uh, Lauren, um, recall, Ingrid, Ingrid Bergman. Bergman. So, yeah. Just saying. You know, yeah. I, I yeah. just wanted to clarify for you. Yeah, totally get it. Totally okay. get it. Uh,
0: <laughs> so uh, also in this episode, there is so much space battle. The majority of it here was done with conventional models and miniatures. And, and in fact, we're looking at some of the last original footage done with miniatures before all Star Trek production switched over to CG. So we have the reuse of a lot of legendary models. Even the NCC-1701D Enterprise, it is incorrectly in here twice, <laughs> but they also use some off-the-shelf AMT Ertle kits and Playmates toys. As we have pointed out before, uh, they were repainted by the effects artists and put into uh, any scenes when they used a lot of different ships. They were really able to save a little bit of money and produce these epic moments because they reused a lot of close up and isolated footage when you had ships on their own, like the Defiant uh, from earlier episodes, they would just use those scenes here. And now let's talk about guest stars. I mean, we really do have old home week on this episode, and they've filled the guest star list with many favorites. Uh, Andy Robinson, Jeffrey Combs, Mark Alimo. Then you add on Aaron Eisenberg, Chase Masterson, J.G. Hertzler. You even have Melanie Smith back in her third appearance as torres which Definitely maintains a streak since the first two actors only appeared once each in that same role. So you got Casey Biggs in his third appearance as Damar, and um, you can really tell they were getting the whole family back together uh, just so they could say goodbye.
2: It's the season finale. Time for a quiet little wrap up of all of this season's storylines. I'm sure everything will be fine.
1: Prologue. Who knew that a Bajoran Ferengi wedding dress would be so hard to decide upon? As seen by the look on Lita's, Rams, Zial's and especially Garrick's faces. It's a good thing that Zial was able to convince Rom and Lita to let Garrick design a one of a kind dress for her, or else two handkerchiefs and a loincloth may have been Lita's wedding couture. One decision down and one to go as Rom and Lita leave Quarks and intercept Captain Sisko, who is walking the promenade with Chief O'Brien. Rom asks Sisko to marry him, uh, perform the marriage ceremony as the emissary cisco reluctantly agrees as he and chief o'brien move on to one of the promenade windows to watch yet another massive fleet of dominion ships emerge en route for cardassia the chief wishes that they would just attack and get it over with to which captain cisco replies dreadfully i have the feeling you're going to get your wish act one in captain Sisko's quarters one good surprise deserves another and another and even another as jake arrives for dinner only to be caught off guard while reading a pad his father handed him of an exposé that he wrote about a certain station commander, one who happens to be his father. Jake tries to wriggle out of the awkwardness by pressing the issue that he is in fact a journalist and, novel writing aside, wants to see his work in print. Meanwhile, in one of the cargo bays, Dax, Kira, and Odo are deciding what to do about several thousand bottles of yamak sauce. Assigned to all of them that Quark is hedging his bets regarding the imminent Dominion and Cardassian invasion. A very droll Odo asks dryly what they want to do with it, to which Kira dismisses him in turn. Dax tells Odo dump it and wants to know what is going on between her and Kira, to which she alludes to his feelings that he shared with her about a month ago. In the captain's quarters, as Nog brings Sisko a Raktigino, he asks if the rumors of the Romulans are true, to which Sisko replies, Remember the 190th rule of acquisition. Hear all, trust nothing. Later in the wardroom, Sisko reveals to his command staff that, like the Tholians and the Miradorn, the Romulans have signed a non aggression pact with the Dominion. The Bajorns, however, are still on the proverbial fence, but Kira firmly believes that they will never sign the pact. Cisco also reveals that Starfleet Command's tactical plan is to halt the Dominion advance by deploying a minefield at the mouth of the wormhole. Odo quips that this could start a war, to which Sisko replies in that losing the peace, a war could be our only hope. Act 2 In her quarters, Dax, O'Brien, and Rom are teching the tech and trying to come up with the most effective mine for their minefield plan, one that is small can replicate itself and can be cloaked to which rom first responds with lamentations of his wedding and then with the idea of creating self-replicating cloaking mines programmed with the ability to swarm enemy ships and detonate en masse brilliant the problem is that the entire minefield must be deployed before activation however the even bigger problem is Where's Lita going to put all her clothes? I don't have enough closet space. Meanwhile in Ops, Captain Sisko relays to Kira and Worf that Starfleet Command will not be sending reinforcements to protect their most valuable base in the Alpha Quadrant. Aye, sir. Wait, what? Much to their chagrin, it turns out that Starfleet Command has other plans for the bulk of their fleet. Plans of which Cisco doesn't have the liberty to share with them at this time. Wait for it. Later in main security, Odo and Kira finally, finally begin talking to each other without the pretense of doom that is facing the station. It seems that the gallows humor of preparing for an invasion and simply focusing on the matters at hand are the perfect icebreakers to get their relationship back on track. As the Defiant deploys the mines, the Dominion responds by dispatching their own diplomatic envoy to meet with Cisco on Deep Space Nine, post-haste. Upon arriving in the wardroom, Sisko is met by a very irate and less than amicable Wayun, who simply demands Sisko to remove the mines blocking the wormhole or else the Dominion will. Act 3. Sisko refuses to bend to Wayun's demands and, returning more true to his Vorta instincts of courtesy and diplomacy, Wayun gives ground and leans into his strengths of compromise and subterfuge. He explains to Sisko, that the recent Cardassian aggressions are simply a response to their war with the Klingons. The Dominion is merely supporting the sovereignty of their newest member and ally. However, in the interest of peace, Wayun proposes a détente, limiting Dominion convoys to only offer civilian aid and medical support in exchange for the removal of Sisko's minefield. After leaving Wayun and his smokescreen of elaborate concessions, Sisko informs his command staff, including General Martok, that the Dominion will soon attack in force. Time is of the essence, and all involves snap to their assigned duties. General Martok is to patrol the Cardassian border for any signs of the Dominion fleet movement. Kira is to contact the Bajoran Council of Ministers so that Sisko can use his influence as their emissary to have them sign the non-aggression pact. What? Sisko explains to Kira that his duty, first and foremost, is to protect Bajor at all costs, even if it means to convince Bajor to sign the non-aggression treaty with the Dominion. Quickly moving across the promenade to the shuttle bays, Zial and Garrick share a brief, yet intimate farewell as he escorts her to the escape vehicles bound for Bajor, reassuring her all the while to trust in his expert survival abilities, reassured in kind and sealed with a kiss. Meanwhile, true to the emissary's word, Cisco does manage to tie the proverbial and financial knot between Rom and Lita just as quickly as they are married. Rom has Nog help usher his new Moogie off the station for her own safety. As Cisco reaches ops, he has the computer finalize program 197, just as Martok reports in on the Dominion fleet, now on the move and heading towards the station static replaces martok's transmission as the appearance of ducat appears before cisco asking the captain to stand down and avoid unnecessary bloodshed much to ducat's delight cisco refuses and orders his crew to battle stations act four with all stations reporting readiness Worf informs Cisco that the Dominion fleet will be in weapons range in 20 minutes, and with this information, the captain pushes Dax and Chief O'Brien to pull off an engineering miracle in under an hour. Meanwhile, in the infirmary, Jake helps Dr. Bashir distribute medkits to the medical staff, but is really there because he wants to be a frontline reporter during the battle, but has been ordered by Captain Dad to stay out of ops. In response, Julian gives Jake some advice. Bashir is spelled with an I. Later while walking the promenade, Garrick comes across Odo and compliments him on his calm and composure. Garrick laments the fact that while on the station, when it was attacked by Klingons almost two years ago, he could have shot dakot in the back, sparing everyone his wrath at present. But Garrick, ever the survivalist, needed dakot alive to survive the Klingon incursion. A decision and a failure, Garrick states, that everyone on the station will soon regret. Quark and Rom are too having their pre-invasion catharsis, retreading their greatest hits and familiar emotional beats, as Quark lambasts Rom for being too human, while Rom returns fire in kind by always reminding Quark that no matter what, they are brothers. As the Rotaran approaches Deep Space Nine, Sisko orders Martok to protect the Defiant while Worf fires up the defense grid. Kira dutifully protests Starfleet's refusal to turn over the station to the provisional government, drops the pretense, and stands with Cisco ready for duty. The battle is joined as the Dominion fleet opens fire on the station. Dukat and Damar are prematurely salivating at the victory over Deep Space Nine and Bajor as Weyun reminds them both that Bajor is under a non-aggression pact, an agreement that the Dominion is honor-bound to uphold, much to Dukat's chagrin. The station's shields have proven to be stronger and more effective than anticipated, as Ducat orders the fleet to destroy the shield generator on the outer docking ring. However, the Defiant, with a last-minute assist from General Martok, was able to buy the time they needed to finish deploying the mines. Once cloaked, the minefield became enough of a deterrent to delay Ducat's final assault on the station, enough for Cisco to execute one last order for all remaining Federation personnel to evacuate Deep Space Nine. Act 5. As the evacuation continues, Dax and Worf steal away a brief moment to say goodbye, knowing that they won't see each other for a while. Dax looks at Worf deeply and says yes to a puzzled-looking Worf. Yes, to marriage. And in many ways, Worf's incentive to stay alive to see Jadzia again once this war is over. At the Bajoran Temple, Captain Sisko addresses those who have chosen to stay behind. As both Captain and emissary, he reassures them that even though the station will fall to enemy hands, all is not lost. He promises to return and reclaim what he and so many others have worked so hard to build, their home and the place where they belong. Sisko beams off the station and onto the Defiant where he is met by a very apprehensive Mr. Garrick who offers his services as quote unquote an expert tailor. And with that, the Rotarn and Defiant cloak their way out of danger and are en route towards Federation reinforcements while Kira and Odo execute Cisco's last command, Program Cisco 197 a subroutine to cripple the station before Dukat can lay claim to Tarak-Nor. Quark pivots quickly to make sure that his bar is fully stocked with all the Cardassians' favorites, especially Kanar and yamak sauce. Rahm has come back to work for his brother, secretly admitting to court that he's remained on board as a Federation spy and runs into Jake, who has decided to stay and report for the Federation news network. Captain Sisko is furious upon hearing Jake's decision and cannot risk the safety of the Defiant crew for one man. Finally, after Dukat, Damar and Wayun dispense with the pleasantry of Kira surrendering the station and Wayun's groveling over Odo, Descott sits somewhat triumphantly in his former office, but his satisfaction is short-lived as he picks up a very familiar baseball off of his desk and lets Wayu you know that it's a reminder, a reminder that Cisco will be coming back. The end. So a uh, traditional rising
0: and wedding gown. I mean, uh, it's a bit of a stretch. to Call it a gown, I think. Mm. Um, Look, I I get the joke they were going for. It's kind of a cheesy
1: illustration, but I guess that's par for the course. Yeah. So here's the thing with, I know a lot of fans want to have Deep Space Nine remastered for the right reasons. Yeah. This is not one of them. That's an effect they
0: would have to replace.
1: Yeah. It would have to be touched (laughs) up or appropriate or... Even yeah. you know, just modernized in a way because it's just you know it's obvious. It, yeah, yeah. And I, they are they, they're laying they're laying into kind of like Chase Masterson's sex appeal, obviously. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Yeah, um, you,
0: you could always tell though, like when you see those pad props and they've literally just printed something in color and sort yeah. of pasted it into the and in this case, an illustration that was not good. But yeah, yeah, the illustration
1: whatever. needed a, maybe, you know, a little yeah. bit of just, you know, something. Right. But I, yeah. I, I wish that in like uh, tossing around all the different uh, variations and numbers of all the different things that Lita saw, I wish that they could have thrown in, like, you know, what about, what about, you know, dress 47? then they would have got the 47 in there. You would think you of all the numbers thrown
0: around. You would think that that would have been one of them. Yeah. Um, Let's see. Oh, there, there was a funny line uh, early when they were talking about, you know, what was going to happen if there's this impending (laughs) invasion. And uh, O'Brien says to Cisco, Keiko and the kids will be a lot safer on earth. They've only been gone for two days. (laughs) (laughs)
1: right right okay chief (laughs) john you know what time it is what time is it it's time to spin the wheel Wheel of of excuses. excuses and what do we have today we have for the we have for the audience today keiko is on earth yes evacuated because of a dominion invasion
0: sure sure i'll buy it took the kids with her too what we have for
1: the chief? We have the chief, a clear conscience, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> he can do as he wishes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Hey, uh, you did mention the Yamak sauce. I'm glad you did. Just remember that if you're ever in a pinch, that could all be traded in for self-sealing stem bolts. So I'm just saying, like, uh, maybe if Dax and O'Brien and Rom uh, needed self-sealing stem bolts for their mines, they would have been well off.
1: Okay, I know that they made a little bit of a parody of it, a parody of it in the episode, but mm-hmm. what do you think yamak sauce actually tastes like?
0: Oh, uh, I, I go with uh, McDonald's Szechuan
1: sauce for uh, you know that that just seems like a natural to me. I'm yeah, I'm thinking yeah. kind of it was Asian. I'm thinking like a ponzu, mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. around that nature. Okay, yeah, yeah
0: good. Five five thousand or ten thousand, definitely, but five thousand is a lot of
1: them. It could be liquid Vegemite for a while. We know. <laughs> I don't know exactly, right? <laughs> you know, well, those are the opposite ends of the spectrum. But you don't know because remember, in um, um, I'm going to get this wrong, but when they when Deep Space Nine went back to K7 and they they picked mm-hmm. up Charlie Brill, right? He said that the Cardassians like drinking hot fish juice in the morning.
0: Ooh, that's right. Yeah. So
1: I'm sure that Yarmuk sauce is possibly some kind of. Fish based.
0: Interesting. Savory. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's good. I think we can go with that. Only hey, the best uh, for our listeners. And in, uh, in this episode, we did get to have another look at DS9's very own Death Blossom. Loved it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I bet. Loved it. And uh, another last Starfighter reference. Didn't the mm. minefield before it cloaked look like the Frontier? It did. The Star League's Frontier. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 100%. yeah Loved that too. Yeah. How do you dump somebody's personal cargo like out of the station? I know that they were taking inventory, but you just can't like dump someone's stuff like what ten thousand bottles of inventory?
0: Yeah, I did wonder about that. Like, a what are you actually doing with it? You know, are, are you just opening up the airlock and letting it float out there, or are you using a replicator slash transporter to just sort of dematerialize it because? Then they just need to go to the other end and rematerialize it that would be
1: like that's all you need to do it would actually just yeah they would dematerialize ten thousand bottles of yamak sauce yeah. and yeah they would rematerialize five thousand larger bottles ah oh, right sauce. there you go there what you, you go do.
0: That's the trick yeah
1: you know there's a there was a nice cut, a nice edit cut where when when cisco wanted to talk to starfleet intelligence he threw his baseball up in the air and right about when he was, he was about to catch it it mm-hmm. cuts to wharf slamming his hand down on the ground and saying yes. you know the romulans are without honor go yeah, yeah that's a surprise so <laughs> but that was a nice edit i, I like the edit there was a lot of good stylistic stuff like that in here and yeah that was a nice one um i will go on record once again saying that how much i love max Grodenchik as rom and I will talk about that a little bit later. I I'll I have a little bit of a thing fair for fair enough. All. Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. So Nana, I think that she has incredible subtlety in her acting because the scene where Cisco's like, this, that's what we gotta do. The Federation told us we can't do anything, mm-hmm. we can't do anything. And she's like, What? Like the the look on her face, she looks like she wanted to just punch somebody or punch through a wall or hit something. Yeah. And it's very believable. Like Kira's, like, what? I'm a freedom fighter. We don't do this follow the rules thing. We do the whatever gets done thing.
0: Right. Right. I, I'm glad that you mentioned that because I I feel like early on in DS9, uh, that was a criticism that I feel like some fans had was that uh Nana, or at least the way that Major Kira was portrayed, was too earnest, too angry, too kind of like always playing this heightened version of herself Mm -hmm. but we've seen way more texture brought into the character over the years and and this was a good uh it was a good episode to see many different facets of her from the the personal emotional stuff happening to the professional um you you know the 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 overarching story here so uh I, i feel like the character has grown it's probably a combination of all of the above, you know, the writers, the director and the actor clearly who
1: are uh, giving her life. Well, the nice thing about being able to look at performances, especially in season finales, where I think the actors are going to tune their performances up a little bit more is mm. that you see that these actors have really understood and inhabited the skins of the characters that they're portraying, because that scene where, where Jeffrey Combs as Wei Yun, when he goes from like irate to, you know, um, Smarmy again, yes. And that transition of iron fist to velvet glove—it's just that's how masterful he is. But at the same time, understands that this is Wayoon.
0: Yeah, he's he's so. I mean, look—you'll get sick of me saying how great Jeffrey Combs is because he is. But he's wonderful as Wayoon, and like you said, he's just able to flip that switch and make you understand everything that is happening, every bit of subtext in a scene. He's perfect. No, I do love the thing that my head went to is uh, he tells Cisco all we want is peace, and I thought I thought I'd heard that refrain before, something like a little piece of Poland, a little piece of France, a little piece of Portugal, and Austria perchance. Earth,
1: Hitler, (laughs) nineteen (laughs) thirty-eight.
0: Yes, that was from Naughty Nazis in uh, uh, To Be or Not To Be. Uh, You can take, you know, the Mel Brooks version specifically, but uh, the original with Jack Benny is great, too. There's another great line or a great little exchange right after that. Uh, Dax is still in command of the Defiant and getting her orders from uh, Cisco. She says, we need more time. You don't have it. We'll do our best. I mean... There's nothing remarkable about that. And we honestly, we hear stuff like that in Star Trek a lot. We don't have time to do this. Well, we're just going to make it happen anyway, you know, but it spoke to the um, urgency of the situation. I like that little, uh, that little
1: exchange. Yeah, and there's that whole miracle worker tradition, yep. you know, that, that goes Go all away. the way to Scotty and and you know how he told Jordy and Relics that you can't tell the commander exactly what time you're gonna get things done. And if you do, cut it in half so you can be a miracle worker. You know, that's that's a very time honored Star Trek tradition. Yeah. You know, uh Andrew Robinson, you know, you know that I fawn over Garrick. Like, of course. He is literally yeah. like one of my favorite characters in the history of Star Trek. But, Deservedly so. Yeah. He acts i think more um more expressively with his eyes i think than anything else
0: yes yeah i noticed that quite a bit in this episode
1: and there's a scene where when when Zial kisses him and says goodbye to him for the last time she hugs him there's a scene where i think i've seen garrick probably at his most vulnerable and andrew robinson only he only acts that through his eyes that like there's Mm -hmm. a there's a regret there there's a sadness there there's a what could have been there there's it's almost as if he is flashing garrick's life through that one particular um scene of like several seconds and it's marvelous it's just there's so much being said without being said it's just yeah really really quite nice fantastic yeah
0: um I, I do have a question about. So we we mentioned Casablanca earlier, and again, it's just one one of the all time great movies. Please go watch it. Seriously. Um, but Nog says as he's leaving the room, "Nice speech, Dad." Now it did raise sort of an in universe question for me. Did Rom watch Casablanca? I have he, to say, maybe okay so so <laughs> Casablanca is a movie that exists in the Star Trek universe that that that's great and they've held on to it for you know 300 plus years so uh fantastic uh, that, that's great but I wonder like did he watch it and just sort of tuck that away for use sometime or is it something that sort of permeated not just maybe the pop culture but like the the uh, uh the culture of Starfleet that's like the, this phrase that's very about you know duty and honor and what's the right thing to do. So it's just sort of out there.
1: Like like people understand yeah, this is how we talk to each other with you know ancient movie lines. Well, remember he also I mean to predate Casablanca by about maybe eighty or so years. He did read and quote Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto. Uh, he
0: did. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. He so, sure did. So Ram is is well rounded. Yes. You know, well, yes. well read and seen a lot of good movies, or at least one good movie that we know of. Um I did love. Uh, there was just Quark is so wonderful in this episode by you know trashing his brother with love mm-hmm. every chance he gets, and of course they have to have him there at the wedding, just being snide and awful. But when he leaves the room, they give it two months. Yeah. I, I, I just, I, I loved it. I love it. He's so awful,
1: but I loved what they did with him. Yeah, he is. He is Star Trek comedy at its best. Timed use, you know, like they Mm -hmm. just insert him exactly, and Quark does exactly what he needs to do. Armin delivers his lines with perfection and just alleviates the scene uh, of of its drama. Um, Okay, so. I think this is the first time I've encountered this, but the shoulder things that Ducat and DeMar I know like the tech fans out there like really norm shoulder things. Hey, don't blame me. <laughs> there was an episode that we just saw when someone says, Hey, our tricorder things ain't working. Yeah, right. right. Yes. So exactly. Hey, hey, hey. Yeah. But yeah. they are wearing like shoulder mounted wearable tech, right? I mean, I guess yeah. like Google Glasses have been invented yet. I, I thought right. I thought those were
0: very interesting. I, I wanted to know specifically what they did because they just sort of hovered there a little like you'd have to lean into it to actually get eyesight with it um i wanted to know what they were for but it it was an interesting choice and it added to the uh the drama of what was going on on that ship because it's very dark but you have those Mm -hmm. red lights pop up so they they use them to good effect we just don't know what they do
1: does that mean that they don't have a screen in their ship there may not oh Maybe. To be, to be continued. Yeah, yeah. We'll have to see that tech. Mm-hmm. Okay. Best scene in the episode. And yeah. I don't care what any of you say. Okay. <laughs> it's when Ducat, I'm sorry, it's when Garrick and Odo are talking about uh why Garrick laments the fact that he didn't shoot Ducat in the back. Odo says, You'd shoot a man in the back. Garrick's like, Well, it's the safest way, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That is such a good line. Oh, yes. my God. I mean, yes. if there is kind of like, uh, th- that's a relationship that I don't think that we've seen enough of. But yeah. every single time you get Andrew and Renee together, it is magic. Yep, Absolute so magic. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Oh, I I do want to say I
0: really liked, it. and I'll I'll come back to the journalism thing in a little bit, but I, I really like the parallel in this story to Jake's journey that we got with Bashir mm-hmm. earlier in Nor the Battle to the Strong, because right. that's we see this realization that he has and the the reality of what's going on hit him in a profound way, and now it's like all of that's coming back to him. What a, a year later, and not even a year later, it's just sort of landed back at his feet. Now he's a different person. Now he's sort of grown into that role a bit. So they made some good choices, some interesting choices with him. And uh, it was immediately taken back to that episode as he's having that conversation with Bashir about Mm -hmm. staying there and helping. Um, Oh, and by the way, in that scene, I don't know if you noticed this. we, We rarely ever talk about the music on Mission Log. But there is a music cue in that scene that really reminded me of the scene in the Wrath of Khan where they were preparing for battle. It's kind of this upbeat march. It's very light here, but it was absolutely perfect. And I don't know if that was on purpose. Somebody heard James Horner and they're just like, hmm, I think I'll borrow that motif,
1: but it really worked well here. You're absolutely right about that. I remember watching that scene when everyone's trying to like you know get station battle ready. And I almost felt like, there's uh, that diddly 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 uh-huh yeah and it's just a yep. very light very frilly very it just kind of like snaps you out of yeah uh, i guess you know of the tone right before and gets you ready it just right? yeah it gives some energy to that transition into the next scene yeah so there's a teching the tech issue that i have with this episode yeah and i don't know if it's a thing uh that the writers thought about or the effects people thought about i'm not you know, blame like, you know, um, what would it be Gary Hutz- Herzl or Doug mm-hmm. or any of those effects wizards, yeah. legends. But so the ship, uh, the station has shields. Yeah. And we know that shields, when they are attacked, like on starships and things like that, they create this energy bubble around them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: When the Cardassians fire energy weapons at the station, there are explosions, meaning that there's <laughs> some type of atmosphere that's being vented in order to create that explosion fire etc. Yes. But when one of the Kardashian ships slams into the station because it's it just out of control and it, yeah. it, it, and it hits the station, it hits it and, and, and generates the shield effect. Yes. So I just found, you know, and then they make a big deal of DeKat or DeMar saying the shields are still up and, you know, DeKat's like, yeah, I know that. Everyone fire on the shield generator so we can get to the station. But every time they fire on the station, again, those atmospheric explosion effects trigger and yeah. <laughs> that drives me
0: freaking crazy. I kept thinking the same <laughs> exact thing watching it. So I was sort of looking. I was like, is there damage happening on the station? No, no. They oh. keep talking about how the shields are holding. Right. But they're exploding. I'm like, are the beams made of gasoline? What's going on? And if they are, where's the oxygen?
1: I This doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah. And I know that's like the most severe nit to pick, but... If you're making a big deal in the dialogue about a shield generator and the shields holding and one of the actual ships, not a beam, a ship explodes and triggers the shield effect, you might want to think about being a little bit more consistent with that. Yeah, but I know it's sexier yeah. to see explosions. I
0: know, I know, yeah. I know. It took me right back to you know Universal Studios, nineteen seventy-eight, <laughs> watching those effects.
1: <laughs> and lastly, I don't know about you, John, but mm. I have these kind of. I know that I'm, I was glad I was watching this in in, in the solitude of my own Airbnb. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But when Martok came on the scene and Save the Defiant, I was pumping my fists in the air. I was like, Yeah,
0: Martok! This is the Martok I love, right there with you.
2: Bum's wedding day was really complicated. What's mine is yours. What's yours is mine. And now the wormhole is mine. Most people just have some cake or something.
0: We will answer the call to arms in a moment, but
1: first a word from Eagle Moss and the Orville Official Ships Collection. You know, John, In answering the call to arms, I have a personal call to arms. I don't have enough arms to call (laughs) to hold all of these collectible ships that I want to buy. Because now, instead of just buying Star Trek ships from Eagle Moss Hero Collector, they are offering us, yes, you heard it right, on the Star Trek show. The Eagle Moss Hero Collector, Ships of the Orville, official ships collection developed in partnership with Seth McFarland based on his hit science fiction comedy drama. The ships of the Orville are available only from Eagle Moss Hero Collector. The first ships in the collection, the Planetary Union ship, the USS Orville, the ECV-197 and its shuttle, the ECV-197-1, are available right now directly from the Eagle Moss shop for only $29.95 each with free shipping. There's even an oversized XL edition of the Orville available for only $74.95. I know you can't see it right now, but I have a large space behind me. The back of my credenza, that would be perfect for something like that. I'm just saying. <laughs> now,
0: you know, the drill here because, uh, Eagle Moss does everything with love and care. And these are no different. They are based on a very careful study of the models created for use in the series. They are highly detailed. They are made of diecast metal and high quality ABS materials. And of course, like all the others, they are hand painted for stunning accuracy. Each ship comes with that display base that I love, plus a collector's magazine just filled with concept art and interviews and behind-the-scenes information about the Orville. Additional ships were slated to join the collection, too, but these are the ones
1: that you want to get while you can. So no matter what you order, use code MISSION10 at checkout to get 10% off your entire purchase. Full details, including comprehensive views of each ship and ordering information, can be found at herocollector.com slash Orville. Again, use code MISSION10 at checkout to get 10% off your entire purchase. All right, Norma, Dominion is
0: coming. That is why we are called to arms. And um, one of the first things that I thought of in this episode was the parallel with uh, TOS, with Balance of Terror. Um, not that that was sort of the impending doom, uh, you know, not, not to the scale of what we have here. But one of the interesting parallels that I thought of was, well, you had a wedding subplot going on in Balance of Terror.
1: Oh, right. Right?
0: Oh, uh-huh. my god, I didn't even see it. And I thought, what a, what a great way. Like that's not one of those things that you can overplay too much. Like you can't just keep bringing that back, but what a great way to ground a story mm-hmm. that might otherwise feel too action heavy, too political, a little too removed from the characters who are there. Um, so what a nice way to actually kind of make it count. Like, right? like these are real lives that are happening here who are also doing things like Celebrating, like I have a moment of celebration, even though there's this threat coming from
1: the outside. So, so instead of uh, uh, Tomlinson, would it be Romlinson? Rom, hey, <laughs> very good. Very Just saying. Good.
0: <laughs> um, now, I, I also want to talk about a point that I thought was—it's it, not like critical to understanding the story here. It's not the most important thing about the episode, but it struck me. And, uh, and I want to tell you why a little bit. So early on in the episode, we have Jake at dinner with Captain Sisko. And Sisko was sort of baiting him, saying, here, read this. You know what, what is this? And he goes through the story about how uh, Captain Sisko is encouraging, or, or sorry, not encouraging uh, Bajor to sign the uh, non-aggression pact. And Ben says to his son, you should have warned me. Jake says, I was waiting for the right moment. And Ben says, the right moment was before you published the article. Was it though? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so now, I, I like I said, I, this is a minor thing in the story overall. But what I really like about this scene is that we have a glimpse of, well, Jake doing his job again. I mean, Jake, think about it. Five years ago, Jake was this kid and now he's somebody who's got a career and he, he he's growing all the time just right in front of us literally and physically you know right in front of us um and we have this real world glimpse here of uh, uh, an ethics and journalism question jake has to do his job he has to cover the story regardless who's involved and he has an obligation to report accurately and typically one does not tell the subject of an interview or story what's coming Right. You know, exactly. you can sit down and do the interview. Hey, I'm doing an interview about the situation here. And then then you go. Then then that is out of that person's hands, is out of the interview subject's hands, and and you're done, you know? So oh, one of the other things that I really liked here was uh, this little glimpse into the Federation News Service, because that's the thing that really rings true. Just the, the act of picking up a pad, giving a look at the headlines, Because we don't get a lot of media in Star Trek, so I always look forward to those little nods because even in the future, information isn't just something that comes from a commander who is issuing an order. There are other methods of communication. There's rumor, as we see with Nog coming into Cisco's office. There's mass media too, because not everybody is always in contact with this quasi-military structure that's issuing orders or disseminating information. So I thought, what a, what a nice, again, sort of like the wedding, what a way to ground the experience of what's happening to something that is very relatable. Picking up a newspaper or in the 21st century, picking up a, a tablet or reading the news on your computer and going like, oh, this is how this unfolds. I may not have the whole story, but I'm getting pieces of the story. And I really liked that there was some understandable tension between the reality of Captain Sisko's position here and the reality of Jake Sisko's position here. And they have different uh different goals.
1: You know, I'm I'm glad you brought this up because it's something that I, I thought was interesting also. And I love this angle with Jake's character because I felt that, say, in the cards, his search for the the Willie Mays card, mm-hmm. I understand why that story is important. I don't really agree with the timing of when they released it in terms sure. of, you know, yeah. right before this finale. <laughs>
0: it feels weird.
1: Yeah. But I, I do like the fact that uh, in this episode, Jake is taking his career path seriously. He knows that he has a talent for writing, but he knows that because of his experience, say, with North about to the Battle of the Strong with with uh, Bashir, mm-hmm. that he has something to to record to observe and to disseminate into the public into that public space and to be honest i wish that that confrontation that he had with with benjamin at the dinner table i wish they they pushed it a little bit more
0: oh yeah
1: you know where where cisco hands him the pad and he's like i'm a reporter yeah you know i'm sorry that you don't agree with the way that i am uh relaying this information absorbing it and and reformatting it so that the public can understand a a more neutral or a, a, a less biased point of view but i'm not going to agree with everything that you say or do yeah. and yeah if you want me to put you on the record i will but this is me this is Jake Cisco the journalist yeah that is a it is a uh, honorable profession i uh, i am approaching it and coming by it honorably but you don't like it because i'm reporting You, my father, but um, judiciously and dispassionately.
0: Yeah. There's an opportunity for that heavier discussion and a little bit of uh, growth there within the two. You know, Ben can't assume that he could just go to somebody like his own son and sort of skirt the ethics of what that journalist has to do. You know, to say, well, well, like now I'm just approaching you as a father to my son, don't run this story or don't quote me in this way. Like, right. no, that that is absolutely unethical and would uh, would would hopefully be roundly rejected by somebody like
1: Jake. Well, I so, can see why the, the you know, his response, Cisco's response when he says the right moment was before you publish the article. I can see why that that would irritate you. It irritated mm-hmm. me, too, yeah. because what that's basically saying is that the, the right the right moment was to ask your father when you could do it. Yeah. That's yeah. what he's really saying. The right. right moment is a letting me let you become a professional. That's yeah. the right moment. And yeah. I think that yeah. I wish they pushed that a little bit further because then it kind of it kind of bookends when when Cisco has to decide to leave Jake on the station because he is a man now. He mm-hmm. can make his own decisions and he has made his bed and he will now lie in it. If he wants to be a journalist, let him be a journalist. He doesn't agree with it, but he has to respect it. Yeah, absolutely. He has to respect it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I want to talk about another moment here that is, again, probably not like the real focus of the episode, but an interesting moment nonetheless. I don't know if I buy Odo and Kira's solution to addressing their personal relationship. We'll just not talk about it. Yes, they I, I look, I, I agree they really need to focus on the job at hand. uh It, it is important. It, it is absolutely critical that they do their roles now because of what's coming toward them. Um, but there was something really odd about that conversation, like uh, basically Odo decreeing, "I have decided that we won't talk about it and and I know that that's temporary. But usually, if someone comes along to you, Norman, or or you listening to my voice comes along and says something along the lines of uh, "I've got something to tell you, and it's really important," but I'm not going to tell you. Then, then that's all you can think about. You right. know
1: that that is all you'll obsess over. So. I get it. It's like, like those text it, messages, like, text me when you get this message. Yeah. Why? <laughs> Why? Why don't you just tell me that in a just text? Just say
0: it. Just say it. Yeah. <laughs> so I get it. Like, yeah, they, they don't exactly have the time to have dinner and uh, reveal their feelings or lack of feelings or how awkward this is going to be. Yeah, it's not the right time to do that. But the way – and it could just – there could be something – possibly a small thing that could be fixed in the dialogue. Um, to get them out of that, but I I found it to be a really strange scene with good intentions, good purpose, but the way it was written didn't ring true to me.
1: Mm. Um, So, you you know, it it was, yeah, it it, stood out. I I completely get where you're coming from because Mm -hmm. I don't think that that's the only time that this happened to Kira in this episode. And, where where Odo sort of decides how this relationship is going to unfold, he kind of dismisses Kira's ability to engage with him and try and pull out the truth. He's just, you know, he's just, you know, uh, he's uh with a blanket statement, he says, I don't want to do this. This is the way we're gonna move forward. Yeah. And I hate to say it. It's, I, it's, I don't think that this is the way that if Kara were real, she would react, but she just kind of like smiles. She's like, okay, you know, yeah, no heart, that,
0: no foul. That's what didn't play true. Because right. I, it, somebody in her position theoretically would say to Odo or sort of indicate to Odo, like, look, if you actually care about me, <laughs> we actually need to have this conversation. It can't just be a blow off like this. Again, understood the timing right now is terrible, but the way this is being presented right now, Absolutely awful. So maybe, just maybe, we will revisit their relationship in a future episode. Uh, spoiler: I believe we will.
1: But you know, just to go back to the other time or the instance that that really stood out to me, as Kira is dismissed yet again by another one of her colleagues slash friends slash fellow officers, and this is right when I'm about to give Worf where the credit <laughs> that I want to give him. Okay, all right. You yes, know, there's the scene where. Where Cisco says that you know um, all the resources the Federation is holding back on because they don't think that the station's worth the resources to protect, yeah, or something to that effect. And then Kira says, "What could be more important than defending the station?" And Warf just snaps her. It's like that is not for us to decide. <laughs> says who? Says you, I know. right? Like first of all, a Mister um, Klingon. Uh, I've been here longer than you. Second, I outrank you.
0: Yes, right. very good point. I
1: I really, and then kind of uh, off camera, you know, turning her head towards Michael Dorn, which makes her expression off camera, we don't get to see what her reaction was. And I don't like using the word hate when I describe something, but I hated that line. I hated that line because it just gives us the misogynistic wharf from let he who is without sin. Yes. That wharf. Yeah, right. Because all he does when he says that is, whatever the captain says, we do. Yeah, you know. And who are you?
0: Yeah, to well, it, it? precisely. It it undermines her, and, th- yeah. and that's uh, that, that's unconscionable.
1: Yeah, and you know, just to put things on paper to make sure that we have the list here, she is a the representative of the Bajoran provisional government that speaks for them. Right, right, and outranks Wharf. As oh, second yeah. in command of the station, she's yeah. literally Cisco's number one. Is her XO? Yeah. So he can, Worf can blindly follow orders like a Starfleet, you know, mechanoid. But yeah, regardless of however this comes turns out, he doesn't have the right or rank to speak for Kira mm-hmm. in this regard for how she cares for and wishes to protect the station with whatever resources are or are not at her disposal. So that, is where that, that is we need the to That's where we
0: need that season one, season two, or Ernest Kira to really yeah. lay the smack down. Oh, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah.
1: yeah. Um, also, I don't know if you got this, but something that really resonated with me in this episode, maybe because I'm Filipino, or maybe because mm-hmm. I just love World War II history, but I call this the MacArthur effect. So uh, let me lay it down for all the listeners out there. I'm going to back this up a little bit. When Cisco addressed the remaining residents on the promenade, I felt that it felt incredibly, if not spiritually, similar to when General Douglas MacArthur was forced to flee the Philippines in March of 1942. um, He and his family were safely sequestered in Australia. He Mm -hmm. vowed to the people that he would return. This is his famous I shall return speech. And he would free the Philippine people, which he did three uh, years later in January of 1945. Yeah. And when Cisco says, and I promise I will not rest until I stand with you again here on this place where I belong, I just couldn't help but making the comparison between how he, much like MacArthur was by the Japanese, was being driven out of his home, much like the Cardassians were to Cisco. And he vowed to the people that were left, I shall return, and then punctuated with the baseball at the end, knowing that Mm – he will come back because the cot knows how much that baseball means to him.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so look, you, you are not wrong. I mean, in uh, Terry's book, uh, Terry Erdman's book, Star Trek, Deep space nine companion. Uh, a lot of the writers talk about how this was an amalgam of, well, there were obviously movie references and war movie references, but real world war references, and particular World War II, and going back to MacArthur at the Philippines. Yes, it was very much on people's minds. So you you
1: nailed it absolutely. It was just so strong and just you know mm-hmm. so prevalent in the episode. But yeah, aside of uh, aside from everything that we've said so far up until this point, I have probably something that. I really, really want to express. And I don't know if, if um, this is the right format or if I'm going to have the right tone about what I'm going to say. Yeah, it's but... your show.
0: You can do whatever you want. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm going I'm to admit something to you, John, and I'm going to admit something uh-huh. to the audience. Okay. And, I, and I hope that you agree with me. But Rom is the most complex character in this episode. I just want to get that out there. Hmm. Okay. Make okay. your argument, sir. Okay. So th- okay. I'll tell you why. He's planning a wedding, One. He came up with the idea of the self-replicating minds in the midst of premarital jitters and trying to make sure that Lita is happy. And he also refuses to leave chief O'Brien and his own brother for the love and loyalty that he has for them. He becomes a federation spy at the end and he gets Lita off safely to Bajor. Look at all the stuff that he does. (laughs) You know, that's, that's it for
0: an, you know, less than an hour-long episode where you've got high-level political intrigue, Cisco Wayun, Jukat. You've got heroics by people like Dax, in particular, a little bit from Worf. Um, I, th- I I think, yeah, Rom might have the most happening. That are coming, coming from different angles. You have the joy of the wedding. You have the comedy of picking the dress and, and having that level of argument. You have the, the heroism of staying behind and telling Lita to go. And all that boiled down into really just a few minutes of screen time
1: in the episode. The scene with Quark and them jockeying back and forth about, you know, you're leaving. I'm not. You're my brother. I know. I love you. I love mm-hmm. you. But we're not really saying mm-hmm. it. And then coming back to work for his brother under the pretense of being, a you know, a, um, what do they call it? Like basically a concierge. But now he's kind of like a pseudo Federation spy and he won't leave the cheese side because of his loyalty. But he has a wife that's going to be waiting for him. And she has I mean, there's so much right. going on with him. This is his episode. This is his hill. And these are our beans.
2: Am I the only one disappointed to find out that program Cisco 197 doesn't just unleash all the leftover tribbles and voles?
1: So having wrapped our arms around Call to Arms... It's time to look at the morals and meanings and messages as we traditionally do at the end of Mission Logs. So let's start with you, John. How did you feel about this, especially with how did you feel about the episode? Does it hold up? Does it not? What do you think? Uh, I I feel like I kind of gave it away a little bit
0: earlier. Uh, I, I just feel like this is an episode that is firing on all cylinders. And I'll admit, at first, I was not too crazy about the Rom and Lita subplot, not because I didn't think it was unnecessary, but I thought every now and then they pushed it to be a little too goofy, given how serious the surrounding story is. But even then, I grew to really like it. Maybe like go for the humor, but tone down the jokes. But that's me being nitpicky. You have to have that subplot, as I said before because you have to ground the episode. You have to understand the personal stakes and the personal cost of what's going. We joked about it because we don't believe it when it's O'Brien talking about Keiko, (laughs) but we do believe it when we see Ram and Lita Mm -hmm. and, and we believe it when we see Garrick and Zial, you know, these are the important relationships and, and Ben and Jake, you know, those are the ones that we've come to really understand and embrace this episode nailed every cliche of great war movies without making it feel like a cliche. That is a tall order. That is a very difficult thing to do. But every time I recognize something in here, like Casablanca, like whatever, I just, instead of it taking me out of it, it gave me a sense of recognition. Like, Oh yeah. They, they're feeling the same thing that we felt in this other place and not in like a, contrived or cynical way this episode really captures a mood too. just just that impending doom of a war that is going to land right at their feet but life has to go on even understanding that so people are nervous they're confused they're depressed they're anxious but they're also inspired and they're focused and they're stealing to do their jobs there's action in the episode certainly some incredible effects given that this was tv in the 1990s but they temper that with the focus on the underlying humanity and the costs of war. Stylistically, I love what they do here. We, we have a moodier, darker show, literally a darker show. And I appreciate the choices made. And I mean, what a great idea uh, of Cisco with Order 197 just taking the life out of DS9 by cutting the computer systems and evacuating. It feels different when Weyoun and crew show up and the promenade is empty. Now, if I want to break my suspension of disbelief, because sometimes that's fun to do too, uh, we, we talked about the explosions, <laughs> you know. But the other thing is just that some of the pacing here is a little wonky, like giving Cisco ample time to give a goodbye speech while apparently everyone else has just stopped shooting. But that's a minor, minor thing. I love this episode because it isn't just relentless with one type of pacing that we actually have these moments for reflection amid all the chaos. I think it's brilliant. I I think they did an incredible job might be, I I mean, I don't know if it's my absolute favorite of season five, but it's gotta be right up there. Uh, I think they did an incredible job and I think it holds up partly because they're just so, focused on the mood and the mission and the, again, the personal stories here that they, they nail it at every turn. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: I, I, I'm curious if you feel differently. <laughs> oh, not at all. I love this episode. I think it, it, it very well may be one of my favorite of the season. And I think that it's because in this, in this modern day of of special effects and visual effects, I mean, the production is gorgeous. As you have stated, the visual effects are, are for the 90s were like mind blowing. Yeah. You know, like incredible. It, you have to kind of understand like where the era is and when the era is of the technology that they used to tell this story from the visual standpoint. OK, so say the scope and dimension of the minefield, because, you know, they're mining a wall. In 360-degree space with X, Y, and Z axes, so it's not like you can't go over the minefield or under the minefield to get to <laughs> Deep Space Nine. But it's part of the narrative, right? Right, right. You buy, right. It, right? You buy yeah. it because it's a clock that needs to tick down to when eventually the clock hits zero, and then all heck breaks loose. But amidst all the special effects and the set designs and and this this, this triumph, this tour de force of, of production, um, it's really about. The guest stars for me, it's really Mm -hmm. about the performances of this, this family of special guest stars. And I think that you mentioned this earlier in trivia, but it's probably the most uh, we've seen to date in a single episode. You had Andrew, you had Mark, you had Casey, you had Jeffrey, you had JG, Max, Chase, and Aaron. I think with the exception of having maybe Louise Fletcher in there if you wanted to get Kai win, just from, like I said, and not, not just from, say, like, you know, a, a Tora Zial uh, every once in a while appearance. We're talking about, like, guest stars that have multiple appearances. Right. Multiple, multiple appearances. So that was really special for me because I've said this before and I know that there are going to be Deep Space Nine fans that will disagree with me and that's okay, but what makes Deep Space Nine special for me are the guest stars, are the aliens that inhabit and embody those aspects of humanity that we can find fault with you know that we can identify with because that's what we do with our aliens in Star Trek we give them our we give them our foibles our faults and mm-hmm. we can identify those through alien you know through their a- alien actions and decisions but in this case though for me uh, two particular, actors stand out. And that is Andrew Robinson and Max Grudenchik because I feel that they just elevate their characters so well with the amount of time that, that they have to work with them. Garrick's vulnerability. That's something new that I think that we really saw with ZL and Rom's loyalty against his own Ferengi culture is something that is absolutely wonderful to see. Knowing that we're just coming off of uh, the episode with the Grand Nagus and Moogie and seeing that the culture that is as capitalist as it could possibly be, (laughs) Rom is as opposite as he could possibly be. And it gives you hope for characters like that, hope for that, that you can overcome your own culture to be a better person, to be something different. And I really love that about his performance there.
0: Yeah. Agreed. So, I, I mean, look, when we talk about morals, meanings, messages here, I, I I feel like it's a little bit unfair because I know that we're on a trajectory here for DS9 to go just full throttle into a story arc about the Dominion War. So a given episode, like a single episode like this won't specifically be about morals, meanings, messages per episode. Um, but we're getting a taste here of hard decisions that then we'll have to revisit and see how they play out over time. But there was a line that really stood out to me, which is Captain Sisko, as he's telling his senior staff what's going on and, and what they have to do now, he says, we're losing the peace, which means war could be our only hope. This is a heavy idea to deal with in, uh, in this episode specifically, but in the story overall. Are there points that the only strategy is to fight, to to instigate and engage in a war in the hope that you win because the alternative peace, quote unquote peace, means that so much else is lost? Are there no other alternatives? Is that really, you know, I think about Picard saying you negotiate and then you negotiate again. And then when that fails, you do it again and again and again. This is a different situation are we justified in this decision-making? And is this, is this just Cisco's decision? Or you know how much of this is sort of coming from the top down to him? How much of it is him just saying like, no, this is it. We, we've run out of ideas. So I, I kind of at this point, I just want to sort of like plant this question here because I feel like we'll come back to it. Which is what is Star Trek's role in telling a war story? Star Trek has not up until this point been about war. We have dealt with themes that come out of war stories. We've dealt with uh, certainly there have been fights, there there has been space action,, uh, but we've focused a lot on the, you know, kind of short term and then personal repercussions of that. This is something entirely different. It is Star Trek going full throttle and say, nope, we're telling a war story. And they kicked it off this way by doing this very, uh, I'm going to say derivative, but I don't mean that in a bad way at all, because I think they did it the right way, You know, lifting these real world examples, heavily inspired by World War II, to make us recognize and engage with this story. So- That's what I'm going to come back to later and ask like, okay, Star Trek just told this big war story. these huge repercussions about the whole quadrant, you know, uh, why, what are we getting at the end of it? What, what is the message to be told about that other than seeing heroics, people, sacrificing things, people making tough decisions. I'm
1: curious to see where we go, because I feel like this is where we're kicking that off. What about you? Well, again, full disclosure for the listeners out there, but when John and I review these episodes, we try and come to a point at the end here with morals, meanings, and messages where this episode landed for us. And this is the truth. I did not Mm -hmm. know that John was going to write that portion in the notes, and my notes align with his absolutely 100%. Be- and, and and you know it's um I think it's because John that that yeah. we uh you and I are of an era of fandom of Star Trek where well let me back up for a second because mm-hmm. I I do want to requote what Cisco said here. And he said we're losing the peace which means war could be our only hope. And uh just to get back to what I was talking about now I know that Deep Space 9 is different in many ways from the original series and the next generation and I think that these are the series that you and I have have become a little bit more ingrained with because that is the style of Star Trek and the tone of Star Trek that that we have that we have built our fandom upon. Mm-hmm. It's not as they aren't as dark as Deep Space 9 is. They are more optimistic than Deep Space 9 is. But it doesn't necessarily mean that Deep Space Nine's story isn't a story that that doesn't have the right to be told. And we're not saying that. It's just that where are we going from here? But I have a hard time reconciling with this particular sentiment from Cisco because at its base, and I reread this several times just to make sure that I was getting it Right. Understanding the code of what he's saying here. Mm. But what I, what I, what I take from that is if peace is no longer a solution, then war is the solution. And then I asked myself peace at the end of whoever has the largest armada peace at the Mm. end of whoever has the strongest weapons peace at the end of who has the best technology or peace who has the most zealous military right and when that war is over and if the federation and its allies do win then what in star trek six i do believe it was spock that quoted aristotle and his quote was nature abhors a vacuum so what happens in that vacuum of power with the federation will the federation utilize that newfound might and authority without checks and balances, where does that end? Because if they have a taste for that, where the Federation says, well, if our negotiations and diplomacy with so-and-so species or so-and-so system fails, then war is our only option. And if they decide that, knowing that they have the technology to defeat that system or that race, What does that say about that, quote, unquote, peacekeeping armada that 2009's um, Admiral Pike, or at that time Captain Pike, was selling to Kirk?
0: Yeah, I I have a problem with might makes right. Uh, Mm -hmm. I really do. And that that seems to be where that's leading.
1: And we're straying away from, say, that scene in Mirror Mirror where the Hawkins said to Kirk, you have— the ability to steal the dilithium from us. You have the might. And Kirk says, but we won't consider that. That's where I'm having a hard time with this translation, this iteration, this interpretation of how these Star Trek writers of this series are looking at optimism and diplomacy as a means to avoid these types of conflicts. Now, all that being said, if this is the case, then then how do I, as a longtime Star Trek fan, obviously steeped in the original series and Next Generation more so than any of the other series, as a fan of the franchise that uses or used, I should say, let me correct myself, optimism and hope at its baseline, how do I reconcile this, this seismic shift in what I've been conditioned to embrace about Star Trek And how can I make the outlook of the rest of this series work for me? That's where I'm at right now. I'm not saying that the story can't be told. I need to know how I'm going to be able to embrace what they're trying to do moving forward to really understand the story that they're trying to tell. That's my challenge.
0: Well, one episode at a time, Norman. I think you got a little time to find that out, but I I think we both just uh, posed some questions to our audience and uh, it'll be interesting to hear uh, how they reconcile those as well. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash mission log. For more Star Trek news
1: and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, a time to stand.
2: Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com. If this was call to arms, and the next one is time to stand, aren't we skipping a call to legs? And
0: transmission. Com